right, good morning. How's everyone doing? Good, good. Happy uh, Fourth of July. Happy Independence Day. Hope your weekend is off to a great start. Hope it's uh, been a refreshing time, uh, and I'm so glad that we're here worshiping the Lord together. Super pumped. Can't believe that we are in week seven of our series through the book of James. Uh, maybe some of you can believe that because you're like, when are we going to end James? Uh, we're just going to keep going, uh, at least until August, uh, until, until the fall starts. Uh, this is our summer series as we've been going through this very important, very critical book in the New Testament. And as I shared last week, uh, James is not one of these vertical books that sort of describes how to ascend and enter into relationship with God. Rather, James is this horizontal book. It shows us how to live as a Christian. Uh, Now that you've been entered, brought into relationship and union with God, what does your life look like? And that's what James is answering. He's answering this question, you have faith, but what does that faith look like at work in your life? And and this is a subject, this is... um, a subject that I'm passionate about and that we see James passionate about because you and I both know that one of the most destructive things, one of the things that can tarnish the image of the church is when we see people claim faith in Jesus and yet their horizontal lives don't really mirror the, the, the call of a Christian in Scripture. And so James is calling us, urging us, saying faith that has been internalized in our heart, soul, and mind expresses itself through looking more and more like Jesus in the way that we live. So we're not talking about perfection, we're talking about consistency, uh, moving and growing in the direction of looking more and more like the one who created us. And so this week we are in chapter 3, we've made our way through chapter 1, chapter 2, now we're looking at verse 1 through 12. So it is our tradition here to stand and honor the reading of God's word. So I want to invite you uh, to stand with me and honor the reading of God's word. If you're joining us via live stream, thank you so much for hopping on. I, I too want to invite you to stand wherever you find yourself in your home and let's read the word of God together. James chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. It says this, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so uh, that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Verse 4, look at the ships also. Uh, Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great is a forest set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated as we pray. Lord, Father, we come in Jesus' name, and I ask that you would come um, and tame my tongue. 
Uh, I pray that you would come and, and control my words. I pray that you would, uh, that I would be emptied of self and be filled with you. And I pray that as we look into this word and worship you in the word, that uh, you would remove sort of any distractions or barriers that we may have walked into this building with. And I pray that uh, our hearts would be captivated and in awe of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, this week I was on, a, I had a phone call with a member in our church and he asked me, what are you preaching on? I said, James chapter 3, uh, the, the taming of the tongue or controlling one's speech. And this member said, you know, most churches skip that chapter, right? And I, I, I believed him. I said, are you serious? I can, I can get out of this? Because this is the part in James where I struggle with the most. Uh, if anyone knows me, uh, I'm an external processor. So I say things that I think that I don't mean, and I say things that are destructive and divisive. Uh, my, my family, my wife sees the brunt of it, but there's people in this community or in this church who've experienced that. And this is the part in James where uh, it is directly convicting to me. And uh, if we're honest, we all sort of experience this same tension in our lives. Uh, where we have a heart for Jesus, we have a heart for the people of God, but sometimes the way we speak about God or even the way we speak about others doesn't necessarily match the lifestyle that Jesus has called us to. And it's this, it's this, we come to this place in James where he's beginning to shift from actually physical works to words. And, and he's going into this direction of, of really... Um, calling his church, his congregation, to be mindful of how they speak and the things that they speak and how they bless and be mindful of what they're saying because James knows that Jesus said that out of the heart, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the, the words of our mouth speak. Uh, in other words, that what's inside of us comes out of us through our mouth. And so I want to look at verse 1 through 2, and we're going to make our way through this portion of Scripture and sort of uh, pull out different subjects that appear. So verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Uh, For we stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So let's talk about teachers for a moment. Who exactly is James referring to? Well, in this first century culture, there would have been two different schools of thought. One would have been the, the rabbinic teachers, the teacher, the rabbis, the teachers of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, James is also referring to New, to New Testament teachers who Paul says have been entrusted to shepherd the ter- church by rightly teaching and handling doctrine. And so these teachers, uh, they represented a very real occupation, but James is getting at something deeper. In order to understand what James is getting at, we need to first understand what teachers represented in this first century context. The first thing that teachers represented was power. If you're taking notes, you can write down the word power. Teachers represented power. In other words, they they held authority. Uh, Teachers of the scripture that we see in the Old Testament held power, not only in sort of social religious context, but also in political issues. We see that the teachers in the Gospels were sort of locking arms with Rome and making sort of political decisions and in the end were the ones who kind of swayed uh, the Roman occupation to crucify Jesus. Teachers had this power to influence. They commanded respect. They could get stuff done or get whatever they wanted out of life. The second thing that teachers represented was prestige. They represented power 
and prestige. Teachers were exalted. They were viewed highly. Uh, teachers were sort of sought as, seen as the influencers of the day and age. Uh, if you were a teacher in the first century or a rabbi, you probably amassed millions of YouTube views and had hundreds of thousands of followers. Uh, you were the person. Uh, they had all sorts of influence. They demanded a, a tremendous amount of respect was given to teachers. Uh, the teachers exuded this sort of glory of worth, of value, of significance, of prestige and power. And, and this prestige, this power was so attractive to a powerless and struggling church in the book of James. If we remember, we see that, that James, the community that James is pastoring, this first century church, is not sort of this thriving church. It's a church that's experiencing all sorts of persecution, all sorts of judgment, all sorts of struggle and turmoil. In fact, history shows that, that, that this group of people were, were taken advantage of. Uh, that they were pushed to the outskirts of society, that they were being evicted from their homes, they were being killed for their faith. So we have a group of Christians who are powerless, who, who are feeling no worth and value in being identified with Christ. And when they look outside into the world, they see a community of people who have power, who have value, who have worth, who have significance, who aren't struggling the way they are. And who is that group? the teachers of the day and age. And for this reason, James is seeing in his church that there is a hunger for power. There is a hunger for worth and satisfaction. There is a hunger for prestige and power. And this hunger would lead to one particular sin that would be the reason for division, for jealousy, for fights, for disorder, and all sorts of evil practices. And what is this sin? Self-serving ambition. Self-serving ambition. Dictionary definition of ambition is a strong desire to do or achieve something. Um, I am one of the least ambitious persons ever. <laughs> uh, I kind of move in, in, in the path of least resistance. I, I don't really have a desire or to, to achieve or do a lot of great things. I just want to learn the word and sort of be present. My greatest fear is that I would sleep through my alarm clock and miss this Sunday morning. Uh, I'm not crazy ambitious. Uh, I know plenty of people who are ambitious who have high goals and strive to, to do great things. There's nothing wrong with ambition. Ambition isn't wrong, but when ambition turns inward, uh, or as one uh, commentator says, instead of being Christ-driven, we become need-driven, then we run the danger of aligning ourselves with an ambition that James, in verse 15, calls earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So there's this difference between being Christ-driven and need-driven. Uh, to be Christ-driven is, is to build your life around Jesus. And to make much of him in every single area of your life. When we're need-driven, it's the exact opposite. There's this need that you, you find yourself uh, struggling with to build yourself up. The need to show others your worth. The need to show others your significance. The need to be thought of as smart and valuable. The need to have power and success. And when we're need-driven, we'll navigate life in, in such a way where we can satisfy, satisfy these needs in the way that we live life. 
And so we enter into relationships that we think will elevate our image, will give us all the worth and security that we long for, that puts to sleep the insecurity and feeling of insignificance that we stay up at night thinking about. When we don't build our life around Jesus, we'll build our lives around ourselves, and so we'll sort of uh, curate our social media or our image to others in such a way that communicates, hey, everything that you're doing and how you're living is awesome, and you've got it all figured out. And it's the A-list side of your life, but in- internally, there's struggle, there's pain, there's hurt. And we'll try as hard as we can to communicate to the world that we're smart and that we're valuable, and so we'll climb up the ranks, get all the degrees, because there's this need to build ourselves up. And this sort of ambition, James would later go on to describe, leads to jealousy. And how is that so? How, how does this sort of need-driven ambition lead to jealousy? Well, because when you look at the lives that others are living, and they're living the life that you want, They're experiencing the marriage, the parenting success. They're experiencing all the money and wealth. They're experiencing the joy and happiness that you crave. What do you begin to do? You envy them. Because they have the life. They have the power. They have the success that you crave. And this was the danger that James' community was running into, is that they were craving the life of these New Testament first century teachers. They were craving the power and success that they were experiencing. They were craving the security and the respect that was being given to them. And the danger here is that instead of looking to Jesus, you become fixated on the image of another person. And the call to follow Jesus is one to set our eyes before him and look at the image of Christ and not the image of any other person because the image of another person can't form you into what you are designed to be. Christ has called us to set our eyes upon him and gaze into his beauty, his worth, his respect, his power, his prestige, his value. And when you gaze into that, you see what he's made available for you. All of the security, all of the worth, all of the power, all of the satisfaction, all of the joy that you could ever need is found in Christ. And so this morning, where are you finding power and value? Are are, are you finding power and prestige and value and worth and significance in how well you're doing as a parent and how great your kids are being raised or is it in, are you finding it in how good you are at your job? You're hitting sales, you're getting the job done, you're well sought of by outsiders. Are you finding it in how much money you have, how much wealth you've accumulated, and your ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with your money? Or is it found in how many followers you have or how big your friend group is? Now, as we consider these questions, I want to ask you, what does this have to do with, with, with taming the tongue? What does this have to do with this portion of scripture where James gives very vivid imagery into uh, taking into careful consideration what words we say and how we use our words? Well, the the first reason, uh, there, there are several. James has a strong warning to protect the sacred call of teaching the word of God. Um, And and this is a sacred call that I have found myself uh, just uh, feeling the burden of. Uh, Because I know that I've stood up before here and I've told you guys some pretty wrong stuff. (laughs) Uh, And there's some of you guys who know I've said wrong stuff because you call me on Monday. Uh, 
uh, I know that, that there's things that I've, I've communicated that I wish I didn't say. And there's stuff that I wish I would have said that I didn't. And so I feel the pressure, the sacred call to teaching, because it's the sacred call that God has entrusted leaders and shepherds and pastors and elders to sort of steer the ship, to, to navigate the church in such a way that it builds and worships God, but also forms and shepherds the people that God has placed here. And so that happens primarily through the instruction and the teaching of the word. And so James sees this sacred call to teaching. And in the first century synagogue, it was a pretty interesting setup. It was like sort of this setting uh, for, 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 um, for debate and, and for uh, having different conversations. And, and, and it was an open forum for communication, kind of like this free speech area. And so it wasn't too difficult to just show up into a synagogue and begin to teach and say whatever you want. And there were some people who were good at what they were saying, but they were completely off and considered false teachers. And James knows that temptation that, hey, you want to rise to a level of power and significance. And you think that teaching in this first century is going to be the mode by which you achieve that. And he's saying, don't do that. Because it will not only destroy your soul, it will destroy the people of God that are listening to you and that he's entrusting in this church. The second reason uh, that I believe is a little bit more practical for us is that James knew that if we wanted to climb the ladder of selfish ambition, we wouldn't do it with our hands, but with our mouth. James knew that if we wanted to climb the ladder of selfish ambition, we wouldn't do it with our works. We would do it with our words. And he says in verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The, The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by humankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And and you know this, we know this, that that our words can go way faster than our works. That that the way we describe a person can, can in very real ways, uh, uh, begin to redefine the way that we think about someone or view that person. And that's why James warns against gossiping. Because you're defining someone with your words uh, that maybe isn't true to their character. And instead of letting God define them as a brother and sister in Christ, now you're placing your words upon them. And in other words, misrepresenting them to the community. James says this tongue is a fire. Staining the whole body. Set on fire by hell. And then, and then he goes on to say in verse 8, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, the word restless here in Greek is this 11-letter uh, word that I can't pronounce that, that means unable to be controlled by something or someone. Uh, that this restless evil is, is that our speech and the way that, 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 that we use our words is, is, is it cannot be tamed by anyone. And, and, and you know this, you, you've told people, hey, you, should, you probably shouldn't talk like that. And they go on and continue to, to talk like that. Or, hey, you should adjust your speech. And maybe they do it momentarily, but they go on to sort of uh, their regular mode of communication. And what James is saying is that this tongue, when it isn't submitted to the Lordship of Christ, it's restless. 
that when your words and your speech is not submitted to the lordship of Christ, it is unable to be controlled by anything. And, and James says that with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. I love what Douglas Moo said. He said, the word of the curse, which is the opposite of blessing, was seen to have great power in the ancient world. For to curse someone is not to swear at them, to, to, to inflict inappropriate words upon them. Rather, it is the desire that they may be cut off from God and experience external punishment. That, that when we use our words uh, to, to speak down upon an image bearer, what we are essentially doing is, is that we're expressing this desire that they would be cut off from God and experience external punishment. And, and, and James is sort of nailing down this sort of duplicitous lifestyle where you're showing up and you can be in a gathering around people, blessing and praising God, and then you can leave and be on the phone with someone, text someone, post something that is completely opposite to the nature and character of God. And that in one moment, today, you probably did this. I know I have. You can be singing songs about the great glory of God and then in the same breath, curse the image of God in other people. And James says this, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So there's this restless evil that we can give ourselves over to. There's this parts of our lives that in many ways can seem uncontrollable, unable to be controlled. And so what is the solution for this restless evil? I want to propose this. It's the gospel of rest. The solution to this restless evil is the gospel of rest. This restless evil, unable to be controlled by something or someone. Jesus would go on to say that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. We know that Jesus comes down, lives for us, dies for us, uh, reestablishes relationship and union with God, but this gospel also awakens us to live the way God has done designed us and called us to live. And one of the beautiful fruits of this gospel is that it brings rest. What do I mean by this? When we rest in Christ, we're letting Jesus exercise control over our lives. When we rest in Christ, we're coming into relationship with God and saying, Lord, you have complete control and authority over every single area of my life, even the ones that seem uncontrollable. That the solution to taming the tongue, as James would say, or controlling something that seems uncontrollable is not found in you sort of mustering up enough strength and enough discipline to give the appearance of godliness. The solution is found resting in godliness, resting in the person of Christ who comes and enables you to live in such a way that you on your own flesh cannot. It's this idea that when Jesus is in the boat and we see the storm and the disciples uh, are, are, are fearing death because the, uh, uh, the scenario seems uncontrollable, Jesus is found resting. 
And as they rest in Christ, they see that Jesus can exercise control, not over just demons and sicknesses, but over creation. And it's this key word that Jesus has something that you and I don't have, and that's authority. That's power. That's control. And so when we rest in Christ, it's not so much about, uh, I'm really tired, I've had a long day, let me come rest in Christ and be refreshed. Rather, resting in Christ is this idea that you are completely abiding in him and letting Christ exercise complete control and authority over your life so that those areas of your life that may seem restless, like the chaos of your speech or the busyness of work, can be subdued and submitted to Christ. And Christ in you begins to work through you in every single area of your life. And Jesus comes and he abundantly fills our heart with grace, with mercy, and love. Jesus comes and fills our heart with his holiness, with his righteousness, and displaces all the wickedness and all the evil that's inside of us that would make us restless so that we can experience peace and joy in him. And so what's so amazing about this is that if you're honest with yourself, sometimes we find ourselves restless because we're trying to create a world for ourselves with our words that we believe will be ultimately satisfying and life-giving. And so we use our words and we use our speech to get what we want, whether it's maybe out of an argument or into a job. Uh, whether it's to create a, a measure of comfort in life or just to get something we want out of a person. And we use our words to strive. We use our words to work and hustle, to achieve and become something. And what's so amazing about the gospel, what's so good about the gospel is that there's no more striving. There's no more working on becoming a better version of yourself. That version is found in Christ. Uh, There's no more earning and trying to uh, use your uh, leverage, your life and your words and your career in such a way where you can maximize fruitfulness and goodness. All of that is found in Jesus. There's no more trying to become something or someone. There's no need to earn and strive for prestige and power. It is found in Jesus. So is your tongue, is your mouth, is your speech resting in Christ? Is it under the lordship of Christ? If it's not, Jesus invites us to do two things. One, enter into a life of self-renunciation. To move away from selfish ambition and trying to create something for ourselves and build a life that is all about us into moving into uh, uh, denying oneself, as Jesus would say. For Jesus, renunciation was, was a denial of self. Uh, we see him saying this in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, it's very important that you understand this. Self-denial is not abstaining from pleasure. Self-denial is not abstaining from fun and good things. Rather, self-denial is saying no to ungodliness and living our lives within the life-giving framework that God has established. And it's when we enter into this place that we can experience eternal life. That is the equality of life that Jesus lived and embodied and walked in. And so if we're going to move away from selfish ambition, it it comes through moving into self-renunciation, laying down 
our own preferences, our own ideals, and submitting them to the Lordship of Christ and letting him exercise complete control authority over our lives. The second thing that I, I believe that we're called to do is radical repentance. If you've been gossiping, stop. If you've been using harsh words, stop. If you've been quick to speak and your words have been fueled by anger, there is grace upon grace that covers this, and the Lord invites you to stop, to pause, to rest in him, to let him season your words and fill your heart with so much love and grace and truth that out of it flows the love of Christ and not the bitter selfish ambition that we may be consumed with. So my question for you is, are you resting in Christ? You see, when we rest in Christ, Christ renews the heart. That, that is the mind, the will, and emotions. And as Christ begins to renew our heart and restore our heart, it brings forth more and more new life. Uh, to further quote Douglas Moo, he says that only a renewed heart can produce pure speech. And consistently, though not perfectly, pure speech is the product of the renewed heart. And so the, 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 the posture, the position that Jesus invites us to is one that lays down our selfish ambition and submits to him. One that moves away from striving uh, to uh, attain power, prestige, status, and wealth and resting in our identity in Christ. And as we begin to enjoy Jesus, feast on Jesus, be with Jesus, there's something supernatural that happens. You look more like Jesus. You talk more like Jesus. You embody the image of Christ. Uh, In 2006, I remember this because it was during the World Cup, I spent a summer in Mexico with my grandma. The gig was like I was supposed to take care of her, but she actually took care of me. Uh, Because what can a 12-year-old do? Not much. Uh, And so uh, it was so much fun. It was during the World Cup. It's where, like, my love for soccer really started. And uh, I was there with my cousins. And and, uh, I knew Spanish, but spending a summer in Mexico, I learned a whole new Spanish. Uh, A Spanish that I didn't even even know. There are words and tone and language and and, and the cadence of speaking. And and, uh, you would have thought that I was from this little village called Allende Nuevo León that's nestled in the mountains. It's pretty far removed in central Mexico. And, uh, and, and they have their own sort of tone and language. And so uh, when my mom, my parents came back and brought me back home because I had to go back to school, they were so impressed with my, with my Spanish. They thought I sounded like a local. Uh, and they were also taken aback at, at the way that I was using words and sort of the tone and ruggedness and harshness that I was speaking in because that's what I saw my cousins doing. Uh, and so they would speak pretty aggressively and harshly to their parents, and I did that for about a week until it was discipled out of me. Uh, and so, uh, shout out to my family watching. And so uh, th- there's something to be said there. Is like I-, I was engulfed in a culture. All I was seeing was this particular attitude and personality, this way of walking and talking, this way of communicating and expressing oneself. And that got so deep inside of me that though I was removed from it, when I came back home, it was still coming outside of me. It was coming out of me. And uh, some of it had to be deeply redeemed. But there's something to be said there. When we're engulfed in the culture of the Lord, 
Uh, when we are just bathing in his presence and power that he's made available for us, uh, there's this incredible thing that happens where, where, where the kingdom of heaven intersects with our earthly reality. And that kingdom of heaven begins to displace what is earthly in us so that we look more and more like the kingdom that we're a part of. And it comes out in our action, as James is calling us to live out a life of good works, but also in our speech. Also, in how we show love and grace and kindness through our words. In other words, if you want to be incredibly kind and tender with your words, let your heart be um, incredibly uh, tendered by the love of Jesus. Let the Lord grab a hold of your life. Submit and posture yourself in his power and presence through the word, through prayer, uh, through experiencing solitude with him. And there's something supernatural that happens that I cannot explain, where the culture of heaven invades the culture of your heart and you begin to look more and more like Jesus. And so instead of speaking death, you speak the life of Christ. Practically, this is what this looks like for you. Uh, If you find yourself entering into a situation that would cause you to misspeak or use your words harshly, pause and pray. I do this all the time. Uh, I actually do this right before I walk into the house. Lord, Uh, let me have your heart, your kindness, your words. If you find yourself entering into a meeting that would bring something out of you, call upon the spirit of the Lord to lead you and tame your speech. If you find yourself uh, in this place where you want to give into gossip or mar the image of God in someone else, stop, walk away, bless them. So as we come to the table on the night that Jesus was betrayed and handed over to be crucified, we see Jesus uh, instituting uh, communion.